Hello, Gemma here. Just a quick note, since recording, Josh has been promoted to Group M's CEO of EMEA and UK. What fabulous news. Congratulations, Josh. Now it's time for the episode. Yeah, he's saying thumbs up. Right, I've listened to the pronunciation of your surname. I know I've done it quite a few times on stage, but it's Krzyzewski. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Amazing. Today's guest is Josh Krzyzewski. Today's guest is Josh Krzyzewski. How, how can I not say it right now? Today's guest is Josh Krzyzewski. <laughs> Why am I saying it wrong? Is Krzyzewski. It, it, yeah, Krzyzewski. Yeah, it's perfect. Today's... <laughs> 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 I'm probably tongue-tied. Hello and welcome to Are You Sitting Uncomfortably? With me, Gemma Greaves, founder of Nurture and Cabal. This is a podcast that features courageous storytellers who are comfortable with getting uncomfortable. It's no secret that creating safe spaces to talk openly and share our personal stories has become a bit of an obsession of mine. So why uncomfortable? Well, quite simply, I don't feel we have enough of life's difficult conversations. We tend to avoid getting uncomfortable. We leave so much left unsaid. And let's be frank... You don't grow or learn anything new by staying in your comfort zone. I honestly believe powerful storytelling is a catalyst for change. So genuinely love that I get to chat to incredible guests who all have a story and who are all ready to sit uncomfortably. So let's begin. Today's guest is Josh Krzyzewski, often referred to as a media big hitter, aka a true guru, having spent some 24 years in the industry. Josh is both the global COO and CEO of Mediacom EMEA, where he is responsible for worldwide growth. Not a big job then. (laughs) Josh is perhaps best known as one of the most humble people in our industry, and I certainly feel that. And he's widely recognised for his advocacy work around mental health and workplace well-being. In his own words, he believes that people in business are our greatest assets and never before has there been a time that we should be thinking about our people's well-being than right now. I'm into that. He is also trustee of the Talent Foundry, founding member of the Multiple Sclerosis Society Appeal Board and the brand new president of the IPA, which is the Institute of Practitioners and Advertising for anyone that's not in our industry. Yes, I know he is very impressive. Welcome, Josh. I don't think I am that impressive, but you made me sound impressive, so (laughs) thank you. You really are. So I have to ask you, we have a cactus, so it's all about uncomfortable. (laughs) So Josh, are you sitting uncomfortable? Yeah, I am. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's some mild trepidation, definitely. I've got no idea what we're going to be talking about, but... um, yeah, I suppose that's what you want. So I'm, I'm comfortably uncomfortable. I love that. Brilliant. So going back, what do we need to know about you from before to help us understand who you are now? You know, I've come from a, a kind of a loving background from North London. I'd say middle class family. I'm the middle child. So I've got an older brother and a sister who's younger than me. And my parents, they're not together anymore, but they both live in Bounds Green. So down the road from, from where I live. And we've all stayed pretty local. And so, so yeah, I suppose in many ways, we're all the product of our 
formative years and our upbringings. And so when I was growing up, I wasn't a grade A student, honestly. I was I did pretty okay at school, but I was quite naughty and I wasn't very hardworking. And when I went to university, I changed course. So I went there to do politics and then I changed to do social anthropology. And that Good was the, decision. And that was, was the first <laughs> time I'd ever really got into something I was studying and I loved it and I, and so suddenly I became this really conscientious hard-working student and the truth is I've always been really conscientious and hard-working ever since that like it was like that was a point in my life I must have been about when I started the course it was my second year I, I must have been about 20 when I started that course and I think that sort of I've never really recognized this in my life but I think from then on I've always been a very hard-working conscientious person who's always wanted to do the very best that he can and I think that actually some of that is part Partly because I just love what I do, you know, that, that was why I did well at university because I loved the subject I was doing. I've done, you know, pretty well at, in my in my career to date because I've been really lucky and I've never really done a job that I haven't loved. Like I've always loved everywhere I've worked, nowhere more than where I am right now, honestly. But like I've never had that tough thing where I've just really been unhappy in a, in, in a, in a job. And but I think that, you know, if I was really honest with myself, I think probably a big part of my success is driven by insecurity and fear of failure and fear of being a disappointment and stuff like that as well. So do you know what I mean? Like that's a a driver for me, but it doesn't make me unhappy. And where do you think that comes from? Well, I mean, I was a pre- I was a little bit disappointing at school when I was growing up. So, like, I think uh, that you know, I, I've always had that in my mind that I felt like you know, when school reports came around, certainly in my teen years. I was often trying to sell it to my parents that they that if they could read between the lines, it wasn't as bad as they thought it was. <laughs> so and, always a salesperson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought I was being quite persuasive. I think they found it amusing, but also quite disappointing. The, the, the best was in my first year at the, the secondary school I went to, I took a class that was the teacher was the headmaster of the school. So it was quite important to make a good impression. It was classical civilizations, And in the end of year exam... The exam I was actually turned up late for. I think I got fourteen percent in the exam, uh, one four fourteen. And in his report about me, he said Josh's exam result wasn't only pathetic; it was insulting. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it was a bit. And actually, funnily enough, that same headmaster wrote me an email three years ago to say he'd he'd seen and heard all this great stuff that I'm doing in my work and in in my mental health advocacy and how impressed he was. And it was so I couldn't believe it out of the blue. I got this email from my headmaster. But did your headmaster always say before that as much as he might have said insulting and pathetic, but actually if he applied himself... Yeah, there was a bit of that. There was yeah, that. exactly. Yeah, so he yeah. knew you'd always be great if you... I don't know if, if the words great were ever used. <laughs> but, um, Maybe but, I'm being nice. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if I'm honest, like I think I had middle child syndrome. So I think, you know, the, the, it's the classic thing of you're the baby in the family until the third's born. The third was born when I was nine. So I'd been the baby for quite a long time. And then suddenly you become less relevant. You become very independent very quickly. So I was very independent when I was younger. And I think that that's, I think that's really been helpful for me in life, actually. And I think that's a middle child thing. And I don't know if that makes me difficult to parent or makes me, a, I don't know, maybe a colder individual or something. I don't know. But I definitely think there is an independence about me that has driven me in my career and in everything that I do always. 
That's really interesting because in preparation for the show, I asked you to think about what makes you uncomfortable, given the title and stuff. Um, and I was quite surprised, uh, given your pretty impressive career, that one of your answers was making career decisions for yourself. Yeah, I, I, th- I thought about, I said that because I think it's important that people realise that it is difficult to make decisions about. Like I'm, I, if, so, if someone presents me with a problem of their own, I'm very quick to sort of go, well, you know, I can see a 360 degree view of that problem. And if they're asking for my advice, I'll give it to them. If they're not, I won't. But I can certainly see a good way forward or, you know, the benefits of different things. When it's myself, I find it much harder to see clearly. And and I get in a fog. And I think it's important to share that because I don't know if I've always made the right career decisions. You know, as you say, things are going pretty well for me, but they could have gone in totally different directions as well and potentially gone well as well and you, you never really know and I think probably the, the 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 insight from that is there's no right or wrong decision there's just a decision mm. and then you have to go make that decision then move forward and commit to that and make the best of it but that is definitely something that I struggle with also I think that if I was to give you the why I think that really it like the, the what's at the nub of that is that I have a bit of worry like I worry we were in a young person's industry and I worry about um I want to sustain a sustain longevity in my career and I worry about making career decisions that won't enable me to do that I worry that I'll get to an age and you know I'll become less relevant and I'll resonate less you know it's a people industry and I want to be relevant and sustain longevity. And, you know, I look at, you know, my, 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 my dad was a successful TV producer, but he's still working now close to 80 because, you know, he didn't have a pension. And I think it was quite a young person's industry as well. And so he's quite hand to mouth right now. And he's great at what he's doing. Now. He teaches drama to kids and he, I think he really loves it and he's really good at it. And, uh, and he's very passionate about it, but he is having to work, not because he wants to work. He's having to work because he has to work. And, mm. and, and I don't know, I sort of like look at that and I go, I want to be in a more sort of comfortable position at that age so that I can sort of, if I want to work, I can work, but I don't have to if I don't want to. Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been in the industry together for a few years, but it was only when I hosted a fishbowl which for our listeners doesn't involve fish. It's a, it's a safe space where people get to open up about important stuff. And it was the topic was mental health. And back then, we weren't talking about it as an industry. It was then that we met properly and um, started to get into know you. And you took, you took part in that fishbowl, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. I'd never seen anything like it before. We all sat in a circle and different people sort of stood up and talked about their own lived experience. And it was very moving and eye-opening. And, I mean, I, I talked about my insomnia, which we can talk about uh, if, if you like. But different quite high-profile marketing professionals stood up and talked about their, you know, whether it was bipolar or, I don't know, different issues. Depression. Not, yeah, depression, you know, suicidal thoughts, imposter syndrome, yeah. you know, you name it, basically. Mm. It was there around that around that, that fishbowl. And it was really – and I think it really connected people with each other. Like, I think that um, – you definitely, when you see someone talking about their own real, you know, what's really going on, you have an immediate affinity with that person. And I think also it's really good for that person to be able to talk openly 
amongst people. I think it's quite empowering. So it was very powerful. I was, you know, I was I think it was really important. Yeah, well, it was it was something that was really important to me because we look after our physical health, but do we look after our mental health enough? And I think a lot of people felt that they couldn't discuss, especially in the workplace, how they're feeling and their mental health. So if you ask someone, are you okay? They say straight away, yeah, I'm absolutely great. Yeah, how are yeah. you? They'll, they'll say busy or they'll yeah. say, yeah, 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 yeah. You ask them, are you really okay? And you get a very different answer. Mm. And I think we need to be creating those spaces to have more open conversations. And you're certainly doing that um, in everything you do, aren't you? I try to. I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm on a journey. I think this is quite a nascent thing still. Like we've, I, I, I've been talking about mental health personally for uh, probably about eight years now. Mm. Um, and it's definitely been on the agenda at Mediacom when I was running the UK office. You know, I put it quite heavy, heavily on the agenda and front and centre. And we established a sort of programme, mental health ally programme. We've got mental health ERG um, and we've globalised that mental health ally programme at Mediacom now. So we've got it in our top 16 markets and we should have it everywhere around the world soon we're merging with essence at the moment so it's going to be essence mediacom at the end of this month josh that's amazing i mean that really is no it's 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 great but it's these things are only good if you continue to invest time and energy into them and as soon as you don't they fall off the they come off the boil and so true and i think that also i think that we don't really we i think still if we're really honest i think we still are not 100% sure what interventions are the most effective and what, what aren't. And and that's why I say it's quite nascent right now. So I think we're learning quite a lot as we go. Um, you, you talked about creating safe spaces. I mean, I actually think that I still believe that the most powerful thing that ever happened at Mediacom, and by the way, this was not my idea. I don't want to take any credit for it. <laughs> um, but was this thing that was called, which I talked about when, when we did the fishbowl, was this thing that we did called My Mental Health Story, which we do every year. But basically what it is is someone sends an email out about their own experience to the whole company. And f- five people did it on My Mental Health Awareness Week. I think it must, must have been about seven or eight years ago. And when it first happened, I think it kind of changed the culture of the company in that moment into, be, into one where it was okay to speak openly about your experience and that actually people kind of loved you for it and it made people, it created conversations and it made people go, I'm supportive or thanks for being brave and saying that. I thought I was the only person who felt that or, oh, you know, I had a similar thing happen in my family and we did this or whatever it was. It created. And and then, you know, people standing up and we've had people stand up on a stage and talk about their experience in front of a lot of people at the company. And I think all of those sorts of things have had a positive impact on the business and, and on the company. And I say on the business because actually I think that we also had a very successful time in the business at that time when we launched all the mental health stuff. And I think that there, it's very it's really difficult to measure causality, but I do think that I believe that there, there had a positive impact on our results. You know, our staff churn went down. People felt a real part of a company that cared for them. I think our clients respected it because we shared what we were doing with our clients. They liked it as well and media owner partners. But there's still a long way to go. It's it's a long journey, and I feel strongly that it's never more important than it is right now. I think that mental health is a seriously, in a really bad way, in many ways, in our country right now. I think that the NHS is really struggling with. Well, we know it's it's under so much pressure. The NHS right now, there isn't a huge amount of government investment in mental health. 
And we were in trouble before the pandemic, but the pandemic has exacerbated the situation. I think people feel very isolated. I think that actually comes with hybrid working as well. I don't think hybrid working is particularly helpful for mental health in in, in many ways. It's helpful in other ways, but not in some. I I would agree with that. And I read, um, or maybe it was I heard, because I've been stalking you a fair bit in (laughs) for this, um, that you worried that in in these tough economic times that leaders might revert to type and focus on the bottom line as opposed to the well-being of employees. And I thought it was brilliant when you said, but it doesn't have to be either or yeah. because they don't need to contradict each other because actually one through drives, well-being... I, I genuinely believe one drives the other. Yeah, I think most businesses... Business I think most businesses' employees are the most important part of the business. There's very few businesses where they're not. And I'd say actually, I think probably most CEOs would agree that having a healthy, thriving workforce is going to be better for the bottom line. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But I think to persuade CEOs to invest in proper mental health support, both remedial and preventative, and awareness and education and, you know, non-toxic cultures, et cetera, et cetera, some just know it's the right thing to do. Others want to see the business case for it. Everyone agrees it's probably the right thing to do. And I feel very strongly that you've got some businesses out there who are just you know, best in class, really good at this sort of thing already, you know, Unilever, HSBC, companies like that, who already invest a lot of time and energy and have proper resources behind getting this sort of stuff right. And then you've got companies that don't. And 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 for whatever reason, you know, it could be, it could be because they're very stretched and they're trying to survive and it's just not on top of the priority list right now. But I believe that government has got a responsibility to... to both put in regulation or legislation that ensures that there is a minimal standard of care for people that all companies of other certain size have to commit to and also give all companies the toolkits and kind of the blueprint for what good looks like so that so that it's made easier for companies to be able to implement and so i'm i'm currently leading a manifesto where we're trying to get policy introduced by government i've got an incredible advisory board of some business leaders, mental health professionals, charities, HR professionals, uh, nurses, and we've been working on it for a couple of years, and we're going to launch it later, late, hopefully next month. Actually, um, we're talking to government at the moment, um, and yeah, it's really exciting. And 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 actually, look, the truth is, government is also focused on it and focused on what do you know what can help with health. Workplace is very important, but. I, I, I sense government don't want to legislate. They want to be more. In, they're more interested in kind of encouraging things. You know, encouraging companies to do the right things. And I understand the reasons for that. But the, the drawback to that is that you're always get self-selecting. So you're always going to get the companies that are inclined to do good stuff in this space to go great. Yeah, we'll carry on doing good stuff when it's encouraged. But if it's if there's no mandate, I think that it, it's harder to get the company that, you know, to create the minimal standard and actually to get the companies that are not doing anything right now to start doing things. So why do you think um, it's important that mental health is at the top of the priority list? And, and it would be great for you to share your own 
mental health story you mentioned insomnia why do i think it's important because i think what as i said i think i think mental health is as important as physical health they're very much intertwined but you don't get the you can't it's very difficult to get uh, mental health support for people in this country that's just a fact most people spend their time at work so i think business has a responsibility to take this on if government cannot mm. um and that's that is why i think it's top priority our people are our greatest asset so we need to invest in them and help them thrive and help them. And I suppose, you know, we all want to have a lasting impact on the world. Oh, I, I can't speak for everybody. But I, I suppose if, I, if there's something that I feel like I could, I could have a lasting positive impact on the world, this would be it, to be able to help workplace culture be a place where people can be happy and thrive and have joy in their life and not feel like they you know they get the sunday night blues or they can't bear being in the office or they feel like they don't belong or they feel like they can't be themselves etc so i was about to say and be their true selves because when we were um hosting those mental health fishbowls all around the world the big thing that came across is that people felt they had to be one person at work and another at home Mm. and they had to hide so much Mm. so what would be your i suppose advice for companies that aren't having this conversation because you talk about there's so many brilliant companies out there that are very you know well versed like like Unilever that are doing some brilliant things mm. there's also a lot that are not even encouraging any conversation so what would be your advice on on how to open the conversation about mental health which I, I guess starts with people being themselves right? well culture is driven by the, at the top yeah i think you have to have senior sponsorship of anything if it's not the ceo they have to put somebody in their exco accountable for responsibility of having a mental health strategy in their company it's really simple i think it's about there needs to be education at every level in the business there needs to be support both preventative and remedial support for people all employees and then I think and this is what I'm campaigning for mm. and then I think there has to be a regular surveying of employees that is aggregated so you don't you don't know who's saying what it has to be you know anonymized yeah. anonymized but the employees should be surveyed and the results should be fed back to employees what the what the leadership have learned about how the employees are feeling because you often see in most companies you see there's a disparity in where the leadership think people are and where people really are and that has to be played back to the people that the leadership understand that and what they're doing about it that's all I'm campaigning for I'm not looking for kind of public reporting I don't want to be naming and shaming companies or anything like that because I think that will create all the wrong sorts of behaviors in leadership I think we need openness and honesty we need people companies and leaders of companies if they're not doing great in this space not to feel threatened by it but to feel like there's only upside to them improving what they do you know that's what it's it's, i want it needs to be a positive conversation so yeah the final point i would make is that having safe spaces for people to to speak and share is the is the key thing i think if you any company that does that you do you remove toxic work culture by introducing that sort of thing yeah no i i completely agree and in my own experience that that hugely happened and i think um a big thing is is as you say for the leader it's got to start with the leader and that part of that is is being able to be yourself as the leader and share your own story and you you you've shared your story quite openly haven't you 
about my insomnia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, so I, I still struggle with it, to be honest with you. Like, if, if I... if I um, Last night, right? Oh, yeah, last night. <laughs> I, actually, last night, yeah. So I, I'm delighted I, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, yeah, no, I, I think, like, if, if I'm really stressed about something at work, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll ruminate all night and I won't be able to go back to sleep. And it's bloody annoying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it really affects me. Like it yeah. really affects my my mood and how good I am and how how, my, how I show up from, for my colleagues and how I feel. And you know, I feel depressed when I when I, when I get that. And I and I it happens it happens on and off. Last year I wasn't getting it that much, you know. But it just comes and goes. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. And I'm still functioning. It doesn't mean that you can't do what you're doing, but I think it's important to share it because I want other people to know that doesn't make them abnormal. And if if, if you're lying in bed at three o'clock in the morning, you think you're the only person awake at night in the world, you're not. Yeah, but isn't yours driven by anxiety? Yeah, it's anxiety. I mean, yeah. it's anxiety, it's stress and anxiety. Yeah. yeah. From work? Always work. Always work. Mm. How do you think you can start to combat that in any way? Well, there are certain things that you can do that help. Like, like I, I don't, I try, I try to stay off email after a certain time. Easier said than done in a global job, but um, I think I, you know, I encourage, I encourage companies that are national rather than international companies to, you know, try and encourage people not to email each other at night or in the weekends. Totally. Um, I think it's important to be able to switch off and you know really disconnect from work. If that helps. Um, yeah, so, you know. I, I used to do that where I thought I was getting lots of things off my to-do list at, say, three or four in the morning when I woke up and send lots of emails thinking I'm being incredibly efficient. Yeah, but what I was doing was scaring the life out yeah, of my that's team. The worst, that's the worst thing you can do. I had no idea. Yeah. But when they said, actually, I can't look at my email because I'm scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my. And since that moment, I've never sent emails past, I don't know, 10 o'clock. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think for me... I think more and more people are realising they don't have to read emails. Exactly. But I think, it, I don't know. If I get an email from my boss, I respond. Yeah. But also you can end up having, I remember also having conversations which we would have had, we had at night, which we wouldn't have had in the day in a rational place. So I That's also, so I also think it's better sometimes to not respond. Yeah, yeah. And wait till the next day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's very true. You're in a very different mindset in different times of the day. Exactly, exactly. I need a coffee first. Yeah, I'm, I'm much be- I, I am much better in the morning. I am definitely better in the morning. Yeah, yeah. So if you look back at your career, your life, mm. can you pinpoint a moment when you felt truly uncomfortable? So I think that the, I've never shared this publicly. It's not, it's not a secret, but, you know, my friends know this. But I've never actually talked about this publicly, so, you, you know... So lucky you. Uh, but <laughs> honoured. <laughs> when I was when I was nineteen or uh, eighteen, my so my parents separated when when I was nineteen. When I was eighteen, my father came out, um, and that was quite a kind of defining moment in my life. Certainly, like in a, in negative ways and positive ways, like mainly in positive ways actually. But it was definitely a moment that I was quite uncomfortable. Because Not it was long, to, you know, it was a different time then, mm. and it. Whilst I may unconsciously have had an inkling that that might be the, it might have been the case when it happened. It threw me. I can imagine. And I didn't want to share it with anybody. I kept it very much to myself, and it definitely, I think, it made me feel that you know my life had been a, a lie up until that point. So I think that was quite a sort of uncomfortable moment. I can only imagine. Wow. And thank you for sharing such a, 
a personal moment. My um, pleasure. <laughs> how how um how how long did it take you to to come to terms? Probably about. With it? I mean, I know that I remember that that was my. It, I, I then went to university and did my first year of university, and it probably took that year, I'd say. And then actually, what happened was my parents separated, and then my friends in London who I hadn't talked to about it. Someone told me that they knew. I don't know. I can't remember how. And then it was like I had more of an open conversation with my friends about it. And I think that really helped me come to terms with it and make me feel not so other um, from, from everybody else. And and then, you know, actually, and by the way, the, the reality is we've got a very loving family and my, my, my mother and father are really close, actually. They're, I mean, they're best friends, really, honestly. They're really close. They live really close to each other uh, geographically. We all get together all the time. As I said earlier, we've got... It's kind of quite... It's, it's, it's bizarre. It's like a really happy family, actually. My father's got another partner and, you know, he's friends with my mother as well and, you know, it's quite a modern family, basically. And I think it's, you know, in many ways it's sort of definitely broadened my horizons as I've got older. But it was a really uncomfortable moment at that time in my life when it first happened. Like, it was it threw me. And did it affect the relationship to begin with with your, with your dad? Do you know what? It didn't, actually. I don't know. It didn't really. I can't speak for my dad, but I think it was definitely... Uh, the truth is, I didn't come home. I went to university pretty soon after that, and I sort of, I kind of stayed at university. And in the in the school holidays, I stayed in Sussex in Brighton, and I worked down there. And so for the and, and that wasn't about being away from my dad. It was more about just like it was a bit unhappy at home. They were splitting up. It was like I didn't really want to be there. I wanted to just be having fun and so I stay, I sort of stayed away from it and then after I graduated I moved back to London and I lived with my dad and so which was really nice and so and he you know he was living a very different lifestyle then and um it was quite he was like going out partying and stuff like he was he he he, he was like born again and um, the fun dad to go clubbing with <laughs> well I didn't go clubbing <laughs> with him but it, it was it, yeah but it was a funny it was an interesting time but um we've been close ever since actually so it's not like it, it hasn't had a negative impact on our relationship or anything like that but it's just it was at that very time I definitely sort of thought like I just it was very destabilizing as I think, you know, I don't know if that's about... I mean, I think part, partly it's about the, about the fact that he came out, but I think it's partly, you know, I think a lot of kids, when their parents separate, feel that feeling of, 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 of destabilisation and it's, yeah. it must be hard. So, so, yeah, I think that was something that was definitely a moment in my life that was uncomfortable. And do you think that's helped shape the person you are now? Yeah, I'm sure it has. I mean, I think everything helps shape you in some way. It's quite difficult. Absolutely. It's it's quite difficult to define how it's shaped me, but I think I'm you know, I I believe that everyone should be who they want to be to be happy and we should be as accepting as of, of everyone as we can be as a society um because you know, this it's sort of linked to the the mental health thing really. I think you know, we we should be giving everyone the biggest chance they have to be happy, and and that's it, really. And if you can't be your true self, then you can't be your best self yeah. either. And there's not enough acceptance in society, and that's something that we need to change. Yeah, and that's a whole other pod, yeah, actually. I'm sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in your own family life, is there anything that makes you feel uncomfortable? Yeah, my own parenting. So, like, I would say that. Yeah, like I, I you know, it's. I'm sitting here kind of extolling the virtues of acceptance and, you know, 
caring for our people at work but I, you know I, I often reflect on my how I'm parenting my children and just think I'm doing a terrible job of it and you know even like I'll have a word with myself and then I'll go and do the complete opposite of what I've just had a word with myself about you know because one of my kids has done something that's annoyed me so I you know we do our best as a you know my wife and I we we try and we, we try and make sure we're always aligned as much as possible but it's an imperfect thing parenting and it involves so many different variables and you know it's not one-way traffic and um yeah I, think- I do I, we do our best but it's the thing you know it's the most important job I have and um it's the one that I worry that I'm the least effective at I think we all feel like that as parents um, if I, you know, do work in front of Josh instead of, oh, I, I have a Josh, um, you yes, know, yeah, know, Josh, I know, yeah, I know, I know. I know. That's one of the reasons I wanted to you on the pod, <laughs> fellow Josh. Um, but you know, if I do like work in front of Josh, I feel bad that I'm not spending time with him. I think we're constantly feeling, but at the end of the day, we, we have, we just, we just have to not give ourselves so much of a hard time. I think that is true. That is true. But I think, I don't know. I think that I always used to blame my parents for, about stuff. I always, it was always their fault. Like I always used to think that there was not, I wasn't doing anything wrong, and it was you know. Now I realise what a little shit I was basically, <laughs> and I and I really empathise with my parents who were really trying to do the best for me, and I think that I see a lot of my dad in me actually when I think when I when I think about how he used to get cross with me how I sometimes respond to my kid it's like yeah I don't know I don't know it's, it's just interesting isn't it parenting you talk about it all day like but yeah I mean listen I think I think what we try and do with our kids is give them unlimited love and try and help them understand what's important and how kindness is more important than anything and but they're often not very kind to each other and you know <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it's it's I don't know it's like it's just, as I said before it's not I don't know we do our best but we're definitely you know there's definitely more work to do I'd say. you're reminding me of um we went to because obviously it's just been christmas so we went to the north pole to see santa and um and uh i loved it when uh santa said to joshy the biggest thing i can say to you is be yourself and be kind mm. i thought that was so lovely because i think that's all we can do yeah it's exactly right it's exactly right i love that yeah, because I don't remember that when I visited Santa all those years ago. And <laughs> well, I, I never did. I never did. Well, I'm a Jewish boy, so we never we never really did that. But um, but I think that's really simple. I think that's a really nice North Star. So why do you think it's important to get uncomfortable? Well, actually, I think that's where the magic is. Really, that's 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 the reality. I saw David Bowie said something about. I read something recently, a David Bowie quote about this about like. That's where you need to strive for is that point of being uncomfortable. That's where the best stuff happens. That's where the most creativity happens. And I think when you're too comfortable, you don't challenge yourself. And, you know, I think we should always be striving to be our best selves. And I think sometimes you need to be a bit uncomfortable to do that. You need to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah. To learn and to grow and to change and... And you give that advice to other people, don't you? Do I? I don't know. You do. do I? I read that in one of my uh, about stalking. About kind of growth mindset. Y- you, about the growth mindset. Yeah. 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 I mean, I do, I, again, it's another thing. Like I extol the, the virtues of growth mindset, but I often get completely paralyzed by the, the worry about change. So I'm not saying it's hypocritical, but I think that that's the human condition, isn't it? Like I think like 
just because I'm saying that this is the right thing to be doesn't mean that I'm always doing it myself. But I remember you saying you're aware that sometimes you have a fixed mindset, but you want yeah. to move to a growth yeah, mindset. Yeah, and that's the great thing about human beings is that we're not fixed. Like, we're not stuck in one mindset. Like, we, we switch. Yeah. And we, and we can move ourselves from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. So, you know. And, and when you say growth mindset, just for our listeners, it's, it's kind of having that feeling of going for it, even if you're not sure, going yeah. for it and doing it anyway. Yeah, it's, it's like, it, it's, yeah, exactly. Throwing caution to the wind and just giving it a go. And even if you don't believe that you can be successful, that, you know, that you're going to give it your best go. Yeah, I love that. And why do you think it's important for brands to get uncomfortable? Well, I think I think exactly the same reason for why it's important for people to get uncomfortable. I think that, you know, for brands in this day and age to resonate with people, they have to really be able to identify what their true purpose is in people's lives and in the world. And that can be quite an uncomfortable process to go through. And sometimes you as a brand have to change things that you do whether that's within your supply chain or how you talk about yourselves uh, or how you communicate with people, how you target audiences even, you know, how inclusive you are in, in what you're saying about yourself and who you're talking to. And so I think, and all of that can be quite uncomfortable and actually can put you under commercial pressure. And, but I think it's very important. And I think marketeers have a responsibility yeah, to right. use the platform because they are the voice of the customer. Yeah. And brands could be doing that more. And to, to do that more and to stretch, you've, you've got to get uncomfortable. Exactly right. It comes back to the similar things that we were talking about, about kind of employee well-being. I believe that if you do that successfully, it will have a positive impact on the bottom line. That's what marketers need to be able to communicate with their CEOs and their CFOs. But it's... Uh, it's an uncomfortable conversation and it's, uh, I don't know, I can't speak for marketers, but it's probably one of the biggest challenges of a marketer's job. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So that leads me very nicely onto, you're the new president of the IPA. Yeah. Good choice, IPA. Oh, yeah, no, it's a real honour, actually. I was, I was uh, when I got the call, I was really like, I don't know, it's just blown away, actually. Because it's not something you put yourself forward for. So it's uh, which I like. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. So, so yeah, I was. I, I mean, it's quite fresh. So I don't. I, I haven't got an agenda yet. I don't know. That was what, my next question. Yeah, no, I, I don't. Know. It's, I, I'm not. I'm not going. I'm not becoming the president. I'm not. You don't. You become elected president. I think it's the end of March. So, so I need to think about what's going to be on the agenda. Obviously, you know, a lot of the stuff we've talked about today will be front and centre, but. You know, I need to think about it. And, and, you know, I want to speak to Dougie, who's the current president. Nigel Vaz was the president before him. Goldie before before mm. Nigel. And sort of, you know, I want to sort of look back at some of the great work that they've done and other predecessors as well and have an honest look at our industry and where it's at. And I think a lot, of, a lot has changed in our industry. And I think that the IPA needs to make sure that it's that it's ahead of those changes at the forefront of them and that it's, you know, and that we're giving all of the practitioners of our, of our industry the best chance of being successful in the industry and, and uh, in the future because the industry now looks different from what it did 10 years ago and it will look very different in 10 years' time. It's so true. It's changing all the time. But mm. I, you may not have your agenda yet, but what I do know is you're going to have a huge impact and I reckon an impact at scale. I hope so. 
Yeah, you will. Well, thank you so much. You. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I hope you've enjoyed. I have enjoyed. Really enjoyed it actually. Yeah, I have. We've got a lot off my chest. Is it, has <laughs> so it felt uncomfortable? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much, Josh. I'm Gemma Greaves, and Are You Sitting Uncomfortably is a Fresh Air production. And the producers are the wonderful Izzy Clark and Clara Kavanagh. We're new on the scene, so if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do me a massive favour and follow us, recommend us, and all that good stuff. The bigger the following, the more opportunity to have the best guests. And I want to have these uncomfortable conversations with these incredible people, just like Josh. Thank you so much. Until next time.